Hi everyone, I'm Yasmina and this is Conversations Over Coffee, a podcast where I speak to inspiring Palestinians. Today, we're in conversation with Lina Hadid. She's a lawyer, lobbyist and activist for the Palestinian Liberation Movement. She's also one of the founders of the Palestine Lobby and she uses her social media presence to raise awareness for Palestinian human rights. Hi, Lina. How are you? Wonderful. So nice to meet you. So nice to be here and speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I am uh, first and foremost the granddaughter of Anwar and uh, Care Hadid. And they landed after they were violently forced out of uh, Nazareth in 1948 after many continents, three to be exact, they landed in the United States. And that is where I'm from. So I'm from the capital of the United States. Um, and both my grandparents and my mother is a, are Nakba survivors. So I was born and raised there. My childhood was very, very all American. I was a Girl Scout. I was a Brownie. I was captain of a cheerleading squad. I was president of my class. I was very much an all American activist. Well, that, of course, makes perfect sense. But it also makes me wonder, you know, given that you grew up connected to both the United States and Palestine, did that ever cause you to struggle with your identity? So I think because I have such a strong family, the Hadid family are are so strong and close-knit, I think that I was lucky that I didn't grow up with an identity crisis, but I did see a lot of people around me do so. Um, I never had an issue with my Palestinianness. I was actually very proud because my grandmother constantly reminded all of the cousins, 15 of us, how proud she was. So we never had those type of issues. Where I had issues was when I started entering, let's say, puberty, adulthood. I would have a lot of people comment on my looks and saying that, oh, you know, you're so exotic, you're different. Um, mind you, my mother is blonde and blue-eyed, petite and fair. The, the real Nazarite, so I'm a bit of a mixed breed. So, you know, different. And so I would say, oh, well, I'm Palestinian American. And then they would immediately dismiss that in that you don't exist, in that Palestinians don't exist, or are you talking about Palestine, Texas, because there's a city in Texas called Palestine. So it was this type of like very, you know, it's, it's a sort of intentional infliction of emotional distress in many doses. And so when you go through your childhood and people are constantly denying you know, your own, your own origin and history and, and uh, narrative, denying that because they take the U.S. stance. And when you come from the capital, the capital is a city, it's the smartest city in the United States in that it has the highest PhDs per person. So, I mean, you're talking about a very smart city. You're talking about a city where everything happens, basically. I mean, you have a few other key areas in the United States but Washington is definitely, you know, a smart city. So when they deny your right to existence, they're actually setting precedent. So they're actually making it known to everyone around you that we cannot recognize Palestine or Palestinians because they're so deathly afraid of some sort of retribution later in life, you know? Of course, and I think that's a very common sentiment. Our identity as Palestinians is effectively denied and on a daily basis, whether that be through the news or strangers walking on the street. And so, as you say, it causes many of us to cling to it even more deeply. But given that you were always so embracing of your identity, what are your earliest memories of being Palestinian? 
And did you have any role models growing up? Um, I think that the way that it worked in my family, because my grandfather, Anwar Hadid, was the first Palestinian to arrive in, in Washington. There had been a lot of Palestinians that had gone to Chile and that had gone to like Michigan and Illinois and all these other states, but not in the capital. And he went there because he was working for the State Department. He was a journalist. So my grandmother made sure that any Arab that showed up in Washington, D.C., arrived with embassies or whatever, that we would always have this community. So we ended up having a very strong community of Palestinians, and there were Syrians and Lebanese and Jordanians. And so I never felt, um, let's so to speak, jaded by being Palestinian. I was actually loved being Palestinian. I was obsessed with my grandfather and I wanted to know all about, you know, Safed and all about studying law in Palestine and exactly what happened in 1948. And so I was very curious and I had kind of like a justice gene somehow. And I felt I just wanted to know and I wanted to understand and I wanted to help, you know. Um, but I have unfortunately way, way too many acquaintances and friends who absolutely refuse to identify themselves as Palestinian. They just so much easier to go with your passport and you know i would say then i'm just american but the reality is the more we do that the more we've fallen into the imperialist trap we've actually fallen into their trap they wanted us to disappear and they've actually managed to do so and now we don't even profess our own identity because we're we are just you know jaded and uh, tired really tired completely and i often feel frustrated with those who are unwilling to admit their palestinian identity because while we can all agree that being Palestinian is very difficult, all that means is that we end up falling into this Zionist trap and allowing Palestinian identity to be eradicated through generations. So what do you say to family members or friends that fall into this trap? For me, it's the ultimate challenge. I wait until the day that whether it's a relative or whether it's a very close friend that they are actually going to manifest as being Palestinian. And I will do everything I can to hope that that day comes. But, you know, I also, I mean, you know, I'm trained in the art of persuasion, so I do the best I can, but I understand that it's hard to be Palestinian. I, on a daily basis, I confront so many angry people. And the thing is that it's misdirected anger. It's not against me, you know, it's not against my family. It's not against even the Palestinians. It's just historically misdirected and we've become kind of the victims of the European victims. And this has, has placed us in a very precarious situation. And I think there's so much underlying guilt in the world and there's so much gangster capitalism that they're just like, you know, let's just forget about them. You know, soon enough, we're at the 74 year mark. So soon enough, they're going to dissipate, you know, like they're all just going to be French and American and from the UK and wherever. Absolutely. And now, of course, there are many different visions of what a free Palestine looks like, and they differ even more between Palestinians themselves. How do you define activism in this Palestinian context? And what is your activism trying to achieve in terms of a free Palestine? So, I mean, activism is very kind of vague and overbroad. I have been an activist my entire life since I was a little girl. If you ask my family members, I've always been an activist. So it's just, like I said, again, it's in my DNA. I think that a lot of Palestinians, especially Gen Zs, are natural born activists. And I really think that it is actually a reflection of uh, my generation and the generation above me who were all born outside of Palestine. 
So I think that something has happened where we're more open to activism. I mean, I certainly hope that I play some sort of a role in that. But at any rate, what matters in activism, there are so many different types of activists and there are so, you know, there are so many different types of organizations and all types of different manners to be an activist. What I encourage everyone is to engage in some sort of activism as a general rule, as a Palestinian, as your zakat, so to speak, you know, as you're giving back, as you're giving to the church, you know, in, in the basket, you know, to, to, to be an activist. But what does that mean? That means to really recognize and to, to spread the word and, and to let people know that, you know, we exist, that our narrative was hijacked, that, um, you know, we went through an entire genocide and, and we had a Holocaust in 1948. So I think we need to, we need to straighten that narrative out. And the more we get the information out, the less likely people are going to immediately take the information that is constantly fed to them um, in, you know, the mass media. So I think that's also being an activist. There's so many forms of activism, you know, so I myself, I mean, I'm an attorney, but that's the only way for me to have understood the system inside out. So even with the lobby in 2015, when I co-founded it with Wasim Mamluk, we decided that we were going to at first just um, fund it ourselves because we both have day jobs, because we actually needed to figure out how to form a lobby for this very dispersed, displaced people. The idea with the lobby and the idea with Free Palestine is very simple. We need to create a united Palestinian front. It's that simple. I don't care if you're Fatah, I don't care if you're uh, Hamas, I don't care if you're, I really don't care who, what, you know, where, when, why. It's are you Palestinian? Do we need to get together and do we need one voice? Yes, we do. So that's called the United Palestinian Front. The other angle for the Palestine lobby is to combat 105 years of Zionist propaganda that literally started in the early 1900s before Balfour. I mean, we have so much propaganda. We have a century of propaganda that is specifically geared against the Palestinians, their right to exist, their existence and their history, the history of their existence. So this is huge and this combating this is very challenging for us. And we're up against, you know, APAC and APAC has, you know, 40,000 employees in, in, in just one location in the U.S. And I don't know how much money and funding they get. And, you know, I mean, it's crazy. APAC is the, the American Israeli lobby is omnipresent in the United States. They're everywhere. And I know that because I've seen them in corporate lobbying, lobbying for Fortune 50 corporations. So imagine, you know. And following from that, what does your vision of a free Palestine entail? Because... I think the younger generation of Palestinians has moved far beyond the question of land and we're much more concerned with securing basic rights for Palestinians on the ground. Does your vision align with that? Um, so first and foremost, we are well aware at the Palestine lobby that there is no more Palestine. So we're not like in this game of thinking that somehow there's going to be a two-state solution. You know, I wrote my law review article under Edward Said had a hell of a time um, after I did that. And it was based on Oslo. And if there's one thing that was very clear, one thing that was very clear, it's that the United States and Israel have zero uh, intentions of negotiating with the Palestinians. Absolutely no intentions. So this is very important to know. I personally have been going through even the United Nations routes these days. And what I am finding is that we cannot ask for human rights. We cannot ask for civil rights. It freaks them out. 
So all we are asking for today, for the Palestinians living inside Israel, you know, and it's all theirs now, all we're asking for are basic rights, basic, no more, no less. And from there, we'll take it. But listen, we just want basic rights. And it's crazy that we don't have basic rights. It's crazy that Christians and Muslims cannot have access to basic rights under the nation state law. It's just that everyone has to realize all of us have to contribute somehow to the Palestinian cause. Somehow, every Palestinian and every person that supports Palestine needs to do so. And, it, and this can manifest in many, many, many different ways. Um, whether it's giving your time, whether it's volunteering, whether it's actually, you know, organizing events, whether it's raising funds, whatever it is, it needs to be done. And we need to be louder and more vocal and especially Gen Z. I mean, I think Gen Z need to manifest because the new millennials, they're all so jaded, so incredibly jaded. I can't even tell you. I deal with them all the time. The only hope that I see is Gen Z. And that's because there's something, they got it. They're like, listen, this is bullshit. We're not just going to sit down and, you know, let them feed us all of this, you know, bullshit. Like we know what's going on. We have to stop this. And I think it's important that everyone needs to understand, everyone living in the Occidental world, that their own tax paying dollars are actually going to the state of Israel. Um, and they're not going for good programs. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're going to oppress and dehumanize Palestinians. That's what the amnesty report said. Oppress and dehumanize Palestinians. This is what they do. Absolutely. But given that Palestinians are asking for so little, why has our progress been so stalled? What do you think are the main obstacles that Palestinian activism faces today? Gangster capitalism coupled with Zionism. That's exactly what we're facing. All of these European countries, they know, I lobby in Central Europe, they know that what's going on today is absolutely outrageous and ludicrous. The only reason that they side with the United States and with Israel are for economic interests. And it is said over and over again. And I have heard it over and over again from every single Central European country. So, you know, we're going to have to appeal on another level. We don't have the funds. They're dropping funding for everyone. For the PA, and God bless their souls, because I got to tell you, it is not easy to, to run a government in exile. People think it's so easy and they want to criticize the PA day and night. Well, let me tell you something. Spend 24 hours in their shoes and you will be in shock. You will be in total shock. And I can just tell you because, I mean, I do so much volunteer work for everyone. Um, that I end up dealing with everyone and I see, you know, I see what they go through and I see the obstacles and it's really, really unfair. Um, we have to work, all of us have to work together. That's again why I talk about a united Palestinian front. We are always going to have problems and differences, but we need to handle those behind closed curtains. And then when it comes to the rest of the world, we need to be very strategic, we need to be very straightforward, and we need to be very clear. This is very hard when our own people are working against us. It uh, deeply saddens me, really deeply saddens me, and I think people don't see the long-term goal, which really is a free Palestine. Meaning that Palestinians can walk around freely in what was formerly called Palestine. <laughs> that simple you know, without having to go through six hour checkpoints just to make it to their job, without having to, you know, watch their children getting shot in the streets because, you know, they have a shoot to kill policy. 
I mean, this is this is outrageous, you know. And trust me, Palestine is not the only country. There are other countries that are going through Somalia, Afghanistan. Uh, there are other countries that are going through, you know, horrific situations also. But it's been 74 years of Palestine, and honestly, um, it's just time. The time has come. If we can't solve Palestine, I don't know how we can solve any of the other problems in this world. And, you know, I'm so happy, actually, to see the world manifest and come together for Ukraine. But it's so upsetting that they can't do it for all these other countries. I just don't get it. You know, I just like I, I, I like I said, I'm so empathetic to the situation. But at the same time, I don't get it. Absolutely. And I think it's important to note that this kind of support for causes in the United States or Europe is nothing exceptional. It's generally been a situation where people are capable of being progressive, except for when it comes to Palestine. Now, given that our appeal to human rights obviously hasn't been enough to convince governments and companies, etc., to support the Palestinian cause, what should activists appeal to instead? Um, so I think you're talking about the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, um, which obviously I'm 100 percent behind because one thing that people don't realize historically with the BDS movement is that we actually were inspired by the South African model. But for Yasser Arafat, I do not think that the boycott would have actually worked as well as it ended up working because Yasser Arafat and his team of, you know, uh, gangster Palestinians, they, you know, were able to lobby all of the Gulf states at the time and they were able to lobby the Middle East and even a few other countries. They were able to lobby them and convince them not to trade with South Africa until they abolished apartheid. And it worked. He was really behind it. That was that special uh, relationship that Nelson Mandela and Yasser Arafat had. Yasser, they had so much empathy one for the other because they were both going exactly through the same thing in their own homeland. White men coming in, occupying, colonizing, degradating, humiliating, you know, and killing. So, so it's exactly, it's very, you know, it's beyond similar. It's exactly the same situation. So um, the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement is absolutely imperative when it comes to Palestine. And what can you do? What can any of you do? You guys need to shout. You need to scream. You need to take to the streets. You want me to come and show you? I'll come and show you guys. You know, tell me what city you're in. Let me come. We need to go to every official, senators, congressmen, you name it, governors, uh, MPs, you name it. We just need to hound them. The thing is, eventually, they're going to have to listen to you because we have the right to be heard because we're all living in democratic nations. So we have that right and we have to exercise it. We can't be quiet, hiding in the mouse hole. Oh, because we're Palestinian and we're persecuted and, you know, life is so rough for us. It's like one of my sons said the other day, you know, I'm tired of this because stop playing the victim, you know, like, and I get it. I mean, I get it. You know, this is like a very Gen Z type, you know. It's true. I mean, and, and that we shouldn't be playing the victim, but facts are facts. We are on the right side of history. I really don't know how else. I mean, I pegged this term like I don't know how many years ago and we laughed so much at the lobby, but it's that simple. Hashtag the right side of history. We're not joking here. We are actually on the right side of history. You know, it's it's actually true. So we have everything in our power. We don't have the money. We don't have the gangsters. We don't have Hollywood. 
we don't have all this, uh, you know, all these pro-Palestinian uh, endeavors like the Zionists have, but we definitely have history and we also have uh, an accurate recording of history. So I think, that, you know, eventually they have to listen to us. Listen, I tried to, listen how, I am nobody. I am just one little, you know, humble human being on this planet. And I promise you, I myself last year tried to lobby the queen. Okay, um, and the reason I tried is because I really, I had a push and I had talking points and I got it all across the UK, but basically in your lifetime, take back the Balfour Declaration in your lifetime. Okay, she was alive when it was drafted. It was, it was illegal, the Balfour Declaration. Okay, you do not have the right to give someone else's land. You know what I mean? So it was illegal and she could actually rectify it. She could take it back. She could render it null and void in her lifetime. And then she will die eventually. And when she dies, she, she will go down in history, actually a bit more positive because she went out with a bang and finally, you know, rectified this horrible, you know, historical event that has gone on for too long. I know it sounds over the top, like, who do you think you are, Lena? You know, but I did it. You know, I did it. And I got the word out and I got the message to some people in her family and I got the message to some MPs. And at least they had to hear me out, listen to my talking points and think about it. If, if all the Gen Zs, for instance, in, in the middle of London, get out in the streets like they do for um, the gay pride, I, I guarantee you the, the government will start to listen closer. You know, I mean, that's the thing. We just have to get out there. We all have to get out there and we have to scream and shout. You know, at least in, in London, you can do it. In France, they won't even let you, so. Well, on that note, across the world, we're seeing governments increasingly criminalize Palestine solidarity activism, whether that be efforts to ban public bodies from using BDS tactics or conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. But against this backdrop, how can activists continue to advocate for Palestine? Know your facts, okay? IHRA was created to deal with the Holocaust, Holocaust remembrance, never to forget, and basically so that it would never happen again. That's why they were created. And that's great. That's for the whole anti-Semitism movement, and we understand it. It's specifically talking about the Holocaust. We understand it, okay? We all got it. Zionism, in 1975, the United Nations held that it's a racist ideology okay this is not a religion it's a racist ideology how in the hell you might want to ask emmanuel macron how in the hell can anti-zionism be equated to anti-semitism and it's amazing to strengthen advance and promote the holocaust education research and remembrance that's exactly why it was created okay and the United Nations got involved and they wanted to mobilize citizens to uh, have Holocaust Remembrance Days so that, you know, we don't repeat history. Meanwhile, we are repeating history. It's literally happening at the same time. It has been happening for the last 74 years. What I, I, I think it's amazing what IHRA has established. However, I think that they are picking and choosing the definition of genocide. Because if you're going to protect people from genocide or remember or research genocide, then you have to do this with all of the others, including the Palestinians. Because I do realize that there are other countries, as I said earlier, but that's not what I'm here to talk about today. But, you know, focusing on Palestine. So, you know, the way I see it, you can't sugar pick 
you know, what's genocide and where genocide applies and where it doesn't apply. And that's what they're doing. And that's the big mistake. Well, as many of you will know, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism basically includes criticizing Israel as a state, which means that ultimately any Palestine solidarity activist can be labeled as anti-Semitic. And with that in mind, many young people fear the dire consequences that come with their activism especially given that we still have our whole lives ahead of us. And the older generation often cautions us against speaking out too intensely. You know, my dad always tells me, play the long game. So what do you think we can do to tackle this? Um, first of all, I, I think that it's so clear. All they do is, I mean, if you pay attention, they meaning the Zionists, they just either take whatever statement we make and turn it into a question. They don't actually address it. Okay, so I'm gonna piss off all of the parents for sure, especially your dad, okay? I get it. I get the long run issue, I get it. But let me just say this. If you are living outside of Israel slash Palestine today, and you have any privileges in your life, then you need to exercise them because the people that are suffering are not us. Oh, they called me a name. Oh, they called me a Palestinian whore. Oh, they called me, you know, it's fine. Okay, I don't care what they're going through every day, the humiliation, the degradation, I mean, the genocide, what they're going through, it's up to us on the outside to help them. So yes, I disagree with your dad in that, you know, I played that game, the one he's telling you to play, I played it, okay, and we don't need to play it anymore. We've, we've, we've come to a different time in history today, and actually, we need a fucking revolution. You know, we need a real revolution. We need a revolution. And I know that everyone gets so freaked out and so scared when anyone uses the word revolution, but we need one. And it's the only way we're going to be able to achieve basic rights for half of the population in Israel, which are our people who are indigenous, who come from there and deserve basic rights. Just basic, just basic. We're sitting on the outside, drinking our water, walking in our streets, jumping in our metros, having la bella vita. And it's fucking crazy that more of us are not putting our foot down for even just, I don't care guys, a few hours a week, okay? And manifesting, manifesting for the Palestinians. We have to do that. We can't help them inside. They don't, they, we can't, look at Ali Abu Nima. I mean, from Electronic Intifada. I mean, he is one of my absolute, I mean, I, I, I have so much respect for him. I, he's a very close friend of one of my older cousins, and that's how I met him years ago. I have so much respect for him. And one of the reasons is because he hires people on the ground. They go through so much hell to get any accurate information out of Palestine, out of Israel and he manages it and he will not take any prisoners and he will not kiss anyone's ass, not the government, not Hamas, not this, a real journalist, true, true journalism, just like my grandfather, you know, Anwar Hadid, exactly the same. And this is what we need, this type, you know, I mean, and he lives a very humble life in Chicago, rents a small apartment, his whole life is dedicated to the cause. I'm not saying that you have to do that, but what I am saying is that if you're privileged on the outside, think about a few hours a week. Just think about a few hours a week. There are so many ways. I tell you, I can, I send at least we, the lobby, 
we must distribute on a weekly basis easily, I don't know, a dozen, if not more, uh, petitions to sign. The more signatures we get on these petitions, the more signatures we get, the more effective the petition is. So what's the big deal, guys? Just take two seconds on your computer, sign the petition, and send it off. You know, these are the kind of things we do. And you, if you follow the Palestine lobby, you'll see them because we're constantly posting them. We did so today, for example. Every day we have petitions coming up. These are important. These are very important petitions because these are going into historical evidence. That's all we can do today is create historical evidence, you know, just so that people understand we've been trying to get children out of prison, that people understand that we've been trying to protect our journalists, protect our activists, protect our babies, protect our women, protect, you know, I mean, our, our homosexual population. I mean, you know, like just every day we can do something positive for Palestine if it's just signing a petition and sending it to someone else and having them sign. And by the way, I want to tell you something. I was born and raised as I, I mean, I mean, I was raised in the, you know, in a very, um, you know, middle upper class neighborhood in the capital of the United States. And one thing I saw, because it's all Judeo-Christian, one thing I saw, my closest friends growing up were Jewish American and obviously liberal Democrat Jews, because if you know the capital, it's completely liberal. But anyway, so um, I grew up with my friends and they had that type of a community where everybody got together for anything and everything when it came to protecting Jewish interests and protecting Jewish rights. And I believe in that. You know, I, I truly believe that we have to do the same thing as Palestinians and we can't be scared. You know, yesterday I was talking to somebody who was aggressed and she didn't want to go tell the police and it's all Palestinian based. And the problem is if we don't go and report every time, it goes sight unseen and it's not documented. And we need, one day we're gonna have a case at The Hague. One day we're gonna have a case before ICJ and we need all of this evidence. And that's really another aspect of the Palestine lobby. It's just accumulating all of this evidence to be able to share it with everyone, you know? Now, you mentioned that your activism really picked up at university and obviously, the power harnessed on university campuses is huge. From your experience, what advice can you offer Palestine Solidarity students today? Absolutely. Grassroots is actually the key and everything starts at a very basic education level and university is uh, the perfect environment. Um, yeah, so I, uh, when I was in university, I ran for president of the international students. So I oversaw 14 organizations and was working with all of the international uh, organizations. There was not a specific Palestinian one because that one uh, was handled separately. And that was called GUPS, the General Union of Palestinian Students. So through the other work, I think I went to a few events that were sponsored by GUPS. And then I met the kind of like old, I want to call them the older regime of GUPS. But, you know, the students that were older, that were, but these guys were all hardcore. A lot of them were born in Lebanon, but Palestinian. And then a lot of them, at least my ex, they had to leave during the 82 invasion when they were like little. And then they lived in like either London or wherever, Paris or whatever. So it was a very interesting crew, but they were all like Fida'in, but you know, the new generation. So they trained me. So these guys, and I'm like all American cheerleader, activist. I will fight for anyone's rights. You know, you know, I swear to you, you have no idea. Like, I mean, I'm out in the street. I mean, you can ask my family. Anytime there's a demonstration, I have to find out why and I have to talk to people and I usually end up joining. Um, 
it's just in my nature. So these guys started training me and they were a group of very interesting um, guys. And they started training me and I, I joined GUPS the same time, by the way, as was seen. Mamluk, we both entered, and he was also a disciple like myself. And then I ended up having the first chair in the General Union of Palestinian Students, which, by the way, was started by Yasser Arafat in 1969 at University of Cairo. So I had the first female chair. And then I guess, you know, obviously got more and more engaged and then started taking more and more specialty classes. And yeah. But anyway, anyway, I think if you're an activist and when you really get involved um, with a specific subject and you really start to understand it and and you deal with people who were there on the ground and other people who were next door and you know you start to understand more and become more sensitive to it and it just enrages you more it just i think that's what happened to me it just enraged me even more to the point that you know i really really wanted to free palestine since i was you know 18 years old 19 years old and i was you know, learning more and more um, about the cause. And my family, I think they were so, you know, my mother and my Khalum Muhammad, you know, Khalti uh, Sana and Raida and Najah, they were also, they were all so, so scared to talk about it. They never really spoke about it. So we kind of, my mom is a banker, you know, she's got five degrees, you know, and she's like, I mean, she literally chose a Zionist career, you know? And then I, I wanted to be a performing artist, I swear. I mean, I'm, I'm a ballerina, I dance, I sing also. She said, no way, you know, finance or law. So it wasn't even, you know, I think they were so hard. And I'm like, what? No, 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 no. And she's like, no, absolutely not. You know, whatever you get, it's going in your brain, you know? She was just so, they were so afraid. So I think that, um, I think that we, it's up to us now. I also feel like, when I, I feel like I have a lot more in common, okay, this is gonna sound really funny, but I have a lot more in common with Gen Z politically than I do, you know, with my own generations. I just, I feel like they understand that time is of the essence. And yet all these like older folks are just sitting around twiddling their thumbs, being played constantly by the Israelis and the Zionists and the Americans. And it's boring. You, you, you said to me what, you, you asked me a question about my my new self my new self and my old self right yes i was wondering what your younger self wouldn't believe about yourself today i honestly what my younger self would not believe is that we haven't freed palestine i know it sounds crazy but i just can't believe it i mean you line up the facts you know and i have the degrees to even do so now you know i didn't have them when i was 18 you know and the experience so like, I know now, you know, and I only work with like, you know, I work with Noam Chomsky. I, I work with people that I adore and that I have so much respect for and that I learned so much for, from. And I know that this is all bullshit. So that's really, I think the, the, the main thing that my, my older, my, like myself today would, would question, you know, I mean, or my younger self would question about today. I think for me, it was inevitable that, you know, uh, the generation of my mother and my father Muhammad and all this, that they would see justice in their lifetime. I don't know why. It was just inevitable. Maybe not my grandparents, but I at least thought my mother and my aunts and my uncles would actually see some sort of justice on the ground. And it's actually even worse. Now, we discussed how the older generation's jadedness on advocating for Palestine really comes from 
decades of indoctrination through this Zionist propaganda machine. And this has all really been the work of the Israeli lobby, which you've seen firsthand. Why do you think it's been so successful? Money. Money and membership. It's that simple. They have the highest membership and they have the most money. It's, you know, on the Hill, they don't even call it APAC, the American-Israeli lobby. They call it the lobby. I've been on the Hill and I've done corporate law. I've worked, you know, corporate lobbying on the Hill. And I am telling you, it's called the lobby. Like they actually call it the lobby. Um, They are omnipresent. They take no prisoners. They are relentless. Um, They are absolutely 100% convicted. And uh, they get the money together and they hijack Judaism. So they're forcing all these people in their synagogues. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But I mean, dude, she was giving lectures every weekend in synagogues. What was she saying? And why did this woman who manifested against every single injustice in the world, whether it was women or African-Americans or whether it was Asians or whatever it was, and then when it comes to Palestine, total silence. And she was a Supreme Court justice, female, okay? I mean, we're not doing it. You know, we're not doing it. Like for instance, we have, we have 80 million Christian Zionists. What are they doing? They, they make up these churches, they put 15,000 people in them, it's like controlling masses, and then they pass the basket around and tell them that the Messiah is not gonna come back unless we support Israel. I mean, come on, like seriously? I mean, this is what's happening in America. Like it's that ridiculous. But the ingredients for the success of the Israeli lobby are practical, you know, finance and membership, which we as Palestinians could easily replicate. So why haven't we? Okay, so so I have an appeal out to every single successful Palestinian businessman or woman, um, all of our government, um, basically everyone. I have an appeal out and I keep telling them we need a serious lobby with a financial backbone. It's the only way we're going to effectuate any kind of change. I mean, first of all, if I was a man, I think this would be much easier. no, really. I mean, I've been working in the house since I was a teenager and, you know, I, I, you know, and they want to criticize me about what the fact that I drink champagne. Oh my God, guys, I drink champagne, you know, Ooh, like, you know, I mean, like this is, it, I, I really think that this is something that they keep saying, no, we're going to rely on the others to be our uh, lobby, but that's not how it's going to work. And, you know, I, I'm, I work with everyone. I work with BLM. I work with Jewish Voice for Peace. I work with all of these guys and they have financial backbones. You know, I mean, the thing is, you, this is what you need to make to have any to make any sort of a diff, any impact or any difference. You have to be at the right place at the right time. You have to be there. You physically have to be there and you have to lobby, you know, and lobbying is a lot of work. You know, we have to distribute talking points to everyone. We have to. But, you know, the, the more elaborate your lobby is, the more effective your cause will be. I mean, look at the Armenians in the United States. They have an extremely strong lobby and they are extremely effective. Kudos. You know, but we need to do the same thing. My problem is the older generation still doesn't get it because there's no, you know, it's kind of like that typical like Middle Eastern commerce type thing. It's like, okay, what do I get in consideration for investing in a lobby? And it's like, no, the consideration is going to come over time. It's education. (laughs) It doesn't, there's, there's, uh, there's no widget. This is not going to be produced. You know, I'm not going to, this is, (laughs) you know, it's a lot of work. 
That's completely right. And I think to really advance the Palestinian cause, the younger generation needs to look to older, already successful Palestinians for support. But as we've said, they're so jaded about it. And even with something as simple as this podcast, I mean, although, of course, some have been unbelievably supportive, many Palestinians that I've reached out to just won't give me the time of day. So jaded, jaded. They're jaded. They're jaded and they're paranoid. By the way, we, we have a lot of paranoia, you know, post-Palestinian Holocaust, post-Nakba. So, which is normal when you're persecuted. Paranoia is also part of it. So if you see paranoia with your parents, do not be aggressive with them. Understand that it's literally a condition that's been passed down because we've been persecuted for so long now. Um, I mean, yeah, I see it all the time and I try so hard. I mean, I really, you know, I, I, I try so hard, but at the same time, while getting my point across, which also needs to be done and, you know, not undermining, you know, whatever they call me, Ketkuta or Lady Lena or whatever the hell they want to call, you know, it's like, come on guys, can we just sit down and have a conversation? But yeah, um, but that's what, what, that's what it takes. I'm, I, I could give you, I'm working with UNICEF on a few projects. I'm really trying uh, to get stuff. I have great people that volunteer a lot of time for the Palestinian cause. And we're really trying to get some good, good, you know, uh, work, uh, some foundations. We're trying to bring people closer together. We're trying to sponsor as many books and as many movies and as many uh, short films as we can, because again, it's documenting, documenting history, you know, but all of this requires funds. You know, I'm constantly in project finance mode. Thank God I have a lot of experience. I'm constantly in project finance mode because there are so many great projects out there, but they need funding, you know, and I want to work with Gen Z. I want them to produce 30 minute clips. If I have to watch one more piece produced by, I don't even know who's producing it with the star Wars music in the background. You know what I mean? I'm like, guys, come on, you know? So I, I think that we, we need to get this done. And really more importantly is that I really feel that the, liberal Jewish population in Central Europe and in the United States, the Gen Z's especially, have woken up. And I think that they realized that the Zionist hijacked Judaism, scared the fuck out of them, made them give money to the state of Israel as a safe haven, which made absolutely no sense, but they bought into it because again, they were fear-mongering, scare-mongering, like they do so well, you know? So um, I, I'm heavily focused on these people. I love Stephanie Fox from the Jewish Voice for Peace. I love what they do. Um, uh, I am EU, you know, I've been working with them for years. They are, you know, beyond on top of their game. Uh, again, Electronic Intifada, we really have good people, but they need, you know, Ali Abonima needs 2000 employees. You know, we need to disseminate the information. We need to get it out there. Um, no one's picking up our feet. Um, but, you know, this is what we have to do. We just, we have to, but again, this, this takes a certain amount of funds. Yeah, completely. And moving on slightly, I mean, I'm pretty sure you're basically superwoman because you're also a doctor of law. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a lawyer? Sure, sure. So I, um, I have an undergraduate degree in the School of Public Affairs. Um, and then I went for my doctorate of law. When I started, and I really want everyone to listen to this carefully because it's just my opinion, but still, I just want you to know what I went through. I started out by being in public international law, doing my doctorate in public international law, because again, I wanted to save Palestine. 
But after six months in the program and reading the entire UN Charter and the EU Charter, I realized that it was hopeless, that we were, as much as the UN sets an example and is an open forum for us to lobby that doesn't discriminate against us, those weren't the means I, for me to achieve my goal, which was really to understand ultimately the world of lobbying, you know, and, um, and laws and how to make laws. So I went into international business transactions and after five years of hardcore litigation in insurance defense litigation, mostly toxic torts, I then went and did a postdoc um, in negotiations. I, I think, I think law is an, my, like I said, again, I wanted to be a performing artist and I wonder if I wouldn't have been more effective for the Palestinian cause had I been a performing artist, you know? I mean, I, you, you think about a lot of things or like when, you know, Playboy asked me in law school if I would do the centerfold, uh, try out for the centerfold and it's like a crazy amount and end up being a girlfriend of mine um, who's Ukrainian who actually was in the centerfold uh, because they were looking for half decent looking law students. But, you know, of course my mother had a heart attack, but um, but that definitely would have put, you know what I mean, Palestine on the map. I'm just talking about how to put Palestine on the map. I feel like today in the era that we're in without saying any names, I feel like I almost need to tattoo, you know, free Palestine um, on the back of some very famous basketball players, but, and on the other side of Palestinian flag and turn like a sex video, you know, and I think then, you know, while I'm in the sex video and then that will go viral and they'll be like, oh, Lena Hadid's in a sex video with this famous basketball player. And, oh, you know, look what it says on his ass, free Palestine. But, you know, at the same time, I'm pretty convinced, as I've told uh, all of our leaders, if I, if we could purchase a 30 second spot during the Super Bowl, I could also get this information out to the same people, <laughs> one or the other, you know. <laughs> But, you know, this is this is where we are today, you know, so when you ask me about a financial backbone and a lobby, this is, you know, I mean, we're, we really need to turn heads. We need things to go viral because it's worthy of going viral when they beat the, the, the hell out of a little girl in public and their video is taken and her head is bleeding. I mean, this should be going viral. It shouldn't, you know, I mean, I understand animals' rights and everything, but like we are focused more on elephants and giraffes than we are on human lives today. And it's not just Palestinian lives, it's all lives. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, it's deeply disconcerting. And I think that Gen Z is the one who sees through it. And that's why ultimately uh, they are my favorite people on this earth. So, you know, that's really it. Anyway, we are, we are in a rough position and if anyone's gonna save us, it's gonna be your generation. I need you guys out in the street screaming and shouting and I need you guys to solicit advice, you know? And I'm so happy, by the way, that you came to me and that you asked me to be on your show because that type of initiative is exactly what we need. And I don't want anyone to be afraid of me because as I said, again, I'm just like the humble, normal, you know, Palestinian, attorney, lawyer, and activist. It's nothing special. Any of you, any of you can be this. Any of you can. It's just a lot of dedication. You know, I eat, breathe, and sleep Palestine. You know, it's very much, very important to me. I, I, I don't think I will ever sleep well until we get these basic rights for our people. You know, I, I, my eyes get teary just thinking right now um, about the situation that we're in and how many years it's been. Um, it's, it's painstaking. I think that every, you guys, Gen Z sees it. And it's basically this, if we can't do this in the next 
20, let's say five years or so, if we cannot get this done, we are going to completely lose Palestine. And when I say completely, I mean literally written off of every single major map in the Western Hemisphere, burned down to its soul. Um, so it's up to us. You know, it's up to you guys. And I'm here, you know, I'm here for everyone. Like, I really think that there's got to be even a more effective way to reach everyone. I really think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it's not the sex video, but, you know, I... <laughs> We, we need to do something, you know? you know? Yeah. And on that note, Lena, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you so much. And so next time I'm in London, I hope I see you. Or if you come to Paris, I would love to, I would love to see you um, or Geneva for that matter. And yeah, and let's get this ball rolling. Come on, guys. Let's get everyone uh, activated, right? Absolutely. And hopefully we can all take note of your advice and come together because it really is time for a revolution. Stay tuned to Conversations Over Coffee for more from inspiring Palestinians.